Well, we, again, we have a really good number of people present this morning, and uh, hopefully the weather's going to warm up a little bit. Everybody will be able to get around this week. At least that's what the Weather Channel is promising. We do have visitors, and we're glad you're here. I uh, hope we will continue to make you feel welcome. I hear a lot of good comments at the back door about how friendly we are. That's a good thing. And so I encourage our members to continue to do that, but we're glad you're here. We want you to come back and be with us in the future. And you might see a visitor's card just in front of you, and if you fill that out, and you can hand it to me if you want to on the way out, but uh, we'll have a record of you being here, and uh, we'll know who you are. This morning, as we get into the lesson, <coughs> if I can uh, keep my voice here, as we get into the lesson, this will be the last lesson that I will preach um, uh, having to do with our theme from this year. And, uh, of course, this quarter we're talking about, we are talking this year about in my church, or the church of the Lord, and we're talking about edification in my church this quarter. And I want to look at something this morning, begin to touch upon a subject that I intend to come back and revisit, but it won't be for about, oh, four or five months, so it'll be a little while. But that is what is commonly referred to as discipling. Now, you won't see this word in the Bible, and it's sort of a term that's been coined by, uh, and especially in the 20th century, the latter 20th century, and up to this point, people use this term. But I'll explain what we're talking about and so forth as we get in the lesson. But the whole idea of discipling, being a disciple, and discipling others, and that's what we want to look at. Disciples in the Lord's church, and it is the Lord's church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's been our theme verse for this entire year, looking at the church that Jesus built. Well, disciples in the Lord's church, they discuss, and we should discuss, the nature of Jesus' church. We want to look at it, what it is supposed to be. Jesus built it. And we want to look at exactly what it is supposed to be. And hopefully, and I believe it is here at this place, we are striving for the goal of being just what we're supposed to be in this local church. We, we speak of and have throughout the year of what characterizes a true church constructed by Jesus. In other words, what are the characteristics? What should you be able to see if you walk in? And maybe someone's here this morning, I don't know who's in a Church of Christ for the first time ever. I can well remember when I walked into a Church of Christ for the first time in my life. I didn't, quote, grow up in the church and so forth and so on. So there are certain things that should stand out, we say. There are things that should characterize the local church. And as we've noted, there are indeed identifiable marks. In other words, we have an identity. And there are marks of this church. There are things which exemplify a local church built by Christ. So that, that collective, that body of people, that church, if you will, will stand out and can be known as the Church of Christ at East Orange. And of course, that's what we are. We are located in the city of East Orange, just barely, <laughs> because four towns meet right out here in the street. But we are the Church of Christ at East Orange. Now, obviously, if we look the world over, and really we can look at this place. This, this is a microcosm in one sense of, of, a, of a church that's comprised of different backgrounds, 
Even in this local church, there are different social backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and educational backgrounds. People who are extremely educated, those who are not as much, that kind of thing. There are different religious backgrounds. I already said I didn't grow up in the church, and many of you, perhaps most of you did not, but some of you did. So different religious backgrounds, and we could go on and on with that. But we are united in our faith, what we believe. We've talked throughout the years, we discussed order and truth and the balance of truth and spirit, remember, all of that kind of thing. We are united in that faith. Peter refers to it as a light Precious faith. And members of the Lord's church are joined together as a body, as a collective. I intend to talk a a good deal more about that again in about four or five months. I want to really home in on that idea of a collective and the difference between the collective and the single member, the one member within the collective, but not for this morning. But this is built upon the foundation of Jesus, and it's the foundation delivered by the apostles and prophets. We find that in here. We look to the Bible to see exactly what that foundation is and how to construct the local church upon it. And so churches of Christ can be identified then by the teaching and the practices of their members, Jesus' disciples. Now let me slow down for a moment. Because no matter the ideal, no matter if you understand the foundation, and the foundation is sure, the Bible tells us that, we know exactly what the truth is, at least we can find that in the Bible. But that doesn't mean I practice it. Even if I teach it, it doesn't mean I practice it. We are, and we have a a couple of preachers sitting in here today, several as a matter of fact, And all of you are well aware, and you can attest to the fact that there have been many of us, for example, who taught the truth but didn't practice it. And by the same token, there have been elders and leading citizens, leading members, etc., etc., who knew the truth but didn't practice it. And there have been many, many members of the church through the centuries who understood what the Bible says, but they didn't practice it. And so... When we talk about what characterizes a church, a local church, but one that is a church of Christ, it's Jesus' church at this place, we speak not only of the teaching, which is very important, but we also speak of the practices because we are the disciples of Jesus. Now, I want to focus on that for about half the lesson this morning. Because disciples in the Lord's church speak of the church that Jesus built, and we should. We should talk of it. We should emphasize that fact, that this is the, the church, the one church, the one body, the one true church, etc., etc. We ought to emphasize that the Bible speaks of that. We should talk of that and discuss it. And I want to primarily home in on two passages. One is our theme verse, Matthew 16 and verse 18. We've already quoted it. Upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. But I want you to go with me to Matthew 28, and let's look carefully at Matthew 28, and especially when in verse 19, when Jesus said, I'll read the King James, and then we'll come back and talk about exactly what's being said here. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll revisit this passage in just a second. But two things stand out in these passages in Matthew. One, it is Jesus' church. 
And we should understand that. It belongs to Him. He owns it. We are, He is the head of it. We are His body. We are the church. We, the members here. I'm, I'm overemphasizing that, I know, but I want to build on that idea. And so therefore we, and, and if we speak of us, the church at East Orange, compositely, compositively, well, let me try it again, compositely, there we go. If we speak of it in that way, we speak of all the members together as the one church. But we have to also talk of members individually, as Paul did in many passages, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. We are his body, Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, and members in particular are individually. And so we talk of that. And each of us, as a member of the church, should be the mark of Christianity. There is a verse, and we will get to it. But we stand out. We are read of men. We are looked at by human beings. People look to us to see what we stand for. And really, think about this, and I know you do. Many of you will leave this place today, and you will go out into the world this week, And in many respects, you will be the only Christian wherever you are. That may be absolutely the case. And you alone may be the only Christian that the people around you know. You may be the only member of the church that Jesus built where you are. And so if they know that, and I hope they know that, but if they do know that, when they look at you, they see the church that Jesus built. And so however much you live up to that or you fail in that, they are seeing what is identifying the Lord's church. Now, if I'm going to then in turn, and I hope we are mindful to do this, I want to be an example to them. I want to lead them. I want to bring them into this church, whether a member here or someone else. But I want them to understand the truth. They are going to start at the very basis, they are going to start by looking at me. And whatever they see, that's what they're going to know. And so when we begin to speak of being a member of the church, we understand the importance of the role we serve. We understand that we are disciples of Jesus, and that's what the world sees. Now let's go further with that in Matthew 28. Because as we look at these two passages, and we emphasize these passages... Many in the religious world today emphasize this passage as a passage of discipling. Especially those of you, and we have a couple of members here, whose backgrounds are in the uh, international churches of Christ, sometimes known as the Boston Movement, or even those of you that are older, the Crossroads Movement. I've talked about that a little bit. But there is the practice of discipling. And we'll talk more and more about what that is. But successful discipling... We'll talk about what that is. Requires an understanding and acceptance of these basic facts of Matthew 16 and Matthew 28. Let's emphasize them. First of all, it requires an understanding that this is the Lord's church. It's not ours. Okay. When we talk about the church at East Orange, I don't own it. I'm asked by children sometimes, do you own the church? I always find that a, a kind of an interesting question and a comical one. But I'm asked that quite a bit. Do you own the church? I mean, they see me unlock the door and lock the door and all that kind of thing. So, you know, it's a natural assumption. And I always try to talk to them about, no, Jesus owns the church. And I get that puzzled look like, man, Jesus owns this place? Yeah, sure does. Sure does. But it's the Lord's church. 
And I need to remember that. I need to keep that in mind. So everything here belongs to the Lord. And I mean the building and the pews and the books and this podium up here and everything in here. And even me and you. We belong to Jesus. It's Jesus' church. It's built by Him. It's maintained by Him. But let's look at Matthew 28 and verse 18. When Jesus said, all authority, all power, the King James says, the word is all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus has all authority. He alone has all authority. If I can keep that in mind, I used to say this to myself, Michael, if you can just remember that as a preacher, you're going to be fine. You have no authority. You have no power. You are not the man. Okay? Jesus is. He's the one with all authority. All you and I do as we disciple others, all we do is teach them that. Jesus has all authority. So regardless of our role, our position, no matter what that is, we are all completely subordinate to him. Look at verse 19. We are disciples. I said I'd come back to it. Well, literally in verse 19, here's what it says. Go ye therefore, on the basis of the fact that I have all authority, you go and make disciples, is literally what it says. You disciple or make disciples of all nations is the idea. And you do that by baptizing them. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm a disciple. And it means I want others to be a disciple. And I can literally make them a disciple if I can point them to the authority of Jesus and they will take that step of being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They will be a disciple. It means to be a student. That's literally what the word means. It means to be a follower in the sense of following the teaching of someone. It means to take on the discipline or yoke of that teacher. Those of you in here in, in martial arts, you understand exactly what that is. You study under a teacher, you follow his teaching. A lot of times they will work in philosophy and all of that. Mine certainly did. And you buy into that whole idea. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. That's what we do with Jesus. I buy into Jesus. I believe in Him, I accept all His authority, etc. And that begins with my submission and being baptized. And then, if you'll notice verse 20, teaching them. If you're going to disciple someone, you make them a disciple by, you initiate them, you see, by baptizing them for forgiveness of their sins. But that's not where it ends. Verse 20, you will teach them to observe. And that word observe means teach them to listen to it, see it, obey it, follow it. To observe all things that I've commanded you. So what are we doing in short? We're looking in here for the authority of Jesus. Why? Because this is what the apostles delivered. And we're following this, buying into this, always maintaining the fact as we build each other up in the faith, as we edify one another. That Jesus has all authority. That's why I say so many times to people, and a lot of you have had studies and classes with me and so forth. It's not do what I say do. It never is. And it cannot be. It is always Jesus has all authority. Do what he says do. And I, and I say sometimes to you, and many of you know this, 
If you read through this book and you find something that you see that God is teaching you and it's not what I think or it's not what I do, you do this. Because it's Jesus that has all authority, not Michael. And that's the way it should be. Now, as we think in those terms, the essence of discipling, if you will, the essence of teaching others, of making disciples of other people. I want you to go with me to 2 Timothy 2, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Because in 2 Timothy 2, this is where you have the idea Paul will be dying shortly. And we know that from chapter 4. But Paul is talking about passing on. He's, he's doing exactly what Jesus said do in Matthew 28. He's an apostle. The truth has been delivered to him, but he's going to die. And it's going to matter that he pass that on. You can see that, for example, in verses 2 and 3. And so we'll begin with this. We understand that as you pass it on, listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. The things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same, Timothy, you go out and commit to others. Commit that to faithful men who will be able in turn to teach others also. And so it will repeat itself. I, Paul, will teach you, Timothy. You, Timothy, will teach faithful men. Faithful men will teach others, etc., etc., etc. But you know when you do that, and if you notice what I've got written above me here, when human beings get to teaching other human beings, a lot of abuses come. I've had studies with some of you, again, that have been in that background of the International Churches of Christ, the Boston Movement. It is noted in the last 20 years for a lot of abuses. That's not to say everything about it is wrong. It's not. There's a lot of good about it. But whenever human beings get involved, and I don't care if we're talking about the Boston movement or we're talking about the church here, whenever human beings get involved, abuses easily occur because human beings are involved. And abuses easily occur when disciples attempt the discipling of other individuals to pass it on like Paul is talking about here because in essence, as Jesus' disciples, we're to point them to Jesus. But what happens is we find ourselves, because we abuse it, we find ourselves pointing them to me. In other words, I find myself going out there, I believe what I believe. Let's be honest about it. So do you. I know what I know, I think what I think, and really, I think I'm right. And if you want to know the truth, I think I'm right about everything. You know? Most people feel that way. If I thought I was wrong, I'd change it, and then I'd be right about it. But what I find myself doing is letting that get in the way of pointing a person to Jesus as much as I can, as quickly as I can. Now, I understand, practically speaking, I'm sitting across the table, for example, and I do a lot of studying at the dining room table. I'm sitting across the table from someone who knows nothing. I once was in that position. And my questions are exactly what their questions were. I would say, Dale, what is, you know, what is this mean or what is that or what's right about this or what's wrong about that I would do the same thing that people do with me but I remember how Dale taught and Dale knew the Bible and I used to be fascinated with how well he knew the Bible I'd ask a question he knew right where to go and he'd say turn with me to such and such a passage and we'd turn and he'd say read it and I would read it then he would say what is it saying what do you think that is saying 
And I, to the best of my ability, interpreted it. And then he would say, then what do you think you would do, you need to do? Now listen to that exchange. Where in that did he ever answer my question? I asked him what's right. I asked him what should I do. I asked him to tell me what's right and wrong. And never in that did he do it. He let me, he guided me, sure, to turn to a passage. But he let me read it. He let me interpret it. He let me obey it. And that's what I did. Who taught me then? Jesus taught me. I sometimes say, yeah, Dale taught me. Well, he did. But mainly what Dale taught me is to follow what Jesus says. And if I can do that and you can do that, then we are doing what the Lord wants us to do. Because it is He alone that is to be their Lord with all authority. We need to help them to understand that point. Because you see, only a true servant, real servant, what does it mean? Let's drop down in 2 Timothy 2 and look at verse 24 when it speaks of the servant of the Lord. That means to be a slave of Jesus. Willingly, I've accepted the yoke of Jesus. Willfully, I submit to Him and I believe He has all authority. He has the right as the Son of God who died for me to tell me what to do in every aspect of my life. And I've chosen that. I've chosen that discipline because the benefit of that discipline is being forgiven for all my sins and one day going to heaven. And that's what I want. And there are a lot of other benefits that come with it. When I do really terrible things, my conscience can be cleared because He shed His blood for me. He has the right. In every respect, He has the right to be my Lord. But only if I understand that can I teach someone to be a servant. Because if I teach them to follow me, if I teach them to in any sense elevate me, lift me up, put me in a higher position... They will learn that. And they will strive to do that for someone or to someone else. Only a servant, a real servant, can teach someone to be a servant. And you know there are things in this passage that guide your teaching. First of all, if you'll notice in verses 14 and 16, and again down in verse 23, when he says very clearly, foolish and unlearned questions, just avoid them. There are certain discussions. When you're sitting down with someone, and I know Wes, I've seen Wes teaching, and I know he practices this, and I'm sure others here do too. Ken, others here as well. When you're studying with someone, and you know that what you need to teach them is Matthew 28, or at least the teaching of Matthew 28. You need to teach them Jesus is the Lord. You need to teach them they need to obey the gospel. You need to teach them they need to obey what's in this book. But they've got all kinds of questions. And I'm not trying to be rude with them. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm trying to obey exactly what this says. Because there are just certain things that need to be avoided in the beginning. In fact, if you'll look at verses 14 through 16, all those questions about all those different kinds of things that, yes, require answers. What does this mean? What does that mean? Why do people do this? Why do they do that? I heard about this. I heard about that. All of that is couched in verse 15, which says, you, once you are a disciple, once you are learning and growing, you study. You work hard to show yourself approved. You rightly divide the word of truth. And that's what I need to teach them to do. And so, 
certain discussions just need to be avoided. They're not ready for it yet. They're like little kids. It'd be like trying to take a, a one-and-a-half-year-old and teach them all, of, all about quantum physics. They ain't ready for that. Okay? Someday maybe, but certainly not at that point. Just avoid those questions. And I'll tell you something else that he shows us in verse 19. And that's that immorality and immaturity get in the way. I'll put it bluntly to you. If I'm sitting across a dining room table from a young lady, and I'm trying to teach her the truth, but really my mind is working and thinking what I'd really like is a relationship with this woman. That is going to mess up this study. That is going to mess up this idea of me leading her to Jesus. And vice versa, the lady to the man. And that's what happens. And so Timothy... Man, flee foolish lust. They're foolish. Get past it. Get over it. Get removed from it is the idea. And focus on what, what matters, what's important. What matters here is Jesus is the Lord, and this person needs to obey Him. Immaturity gets in the way. If you're going to be immature and act like a child and think like a child and all the quarrels that children have, the fighting they have, the me first, me better, and all of that stuff. If you're going to do all of that, it's going to get in the way of teaching someone to be a disciple of Jesus. So immaturity and immorality get in the way. But then you notice he enters into a number of things. Verse 24, read them together with me. The servant of the Lord, he says, the slave, the submitted one to Jesus, must not strive. He can't war, he can't quarrel, he can't fight, he can't bicker with an individual if he's going to teach him. But be gentle to all. Everybody he teaches. You know there's a special word for gentle here. It is not meekness. He will use that in just a second. No, this is a word that literally means to be affable. To be kind or mild. And when you know a whole lot about something, sometimes it's hard to be mild, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to be kind to an individual when you know that individual is doing what's wrong. And yet you're commanded to be affable, which is the idea of being likable and warm and people just are attracted to you. You need to be like that because that's how Jesus would be if he were teaching this individual. Must not strive. Be gentle to all. He must be apt to teach, which means the idea of being Able to teach, but also willing to teach. It means you really want the person to learn. You want them to follow Jesus. It means to be patient. You notice at the end of verse 24. Now, this is not the usual word for patient. This is the word that is most often translated to forbear, which literally means to put up with. And you know, if you're going to teach someone, especially an unlearned individual, especially the kind of person that maybe is living in sin, etc., you're going to have to put up with a lot. I've been in Bible studies where all kinds of things came out of the mouth of the other person. You're going to have to put up with some things. And if you take it upon yourself to jump on every little thing, you ain't getting anywhere. I promise you that. In meekness, now is the time for meekness. And what does meekness mean? It means you're strong, you have strength, maybe with respect to Bible knowledge. But it's under restraint. 
If a little child walked up to you and they don't know any better, and I'm talking about a very small one, and they just haul off and hit you as hard as they can. And they hit you in a place where it hurts. You have the strength to knock that child across the room. You have the strength to kill that kid. But you restrain that because you understand you can't hit back with all your strength in this little human being. Do the same thing when you're teaching someone. Keep it under restraint. And you'll notice he says, in meekness, instructing those. This is a word not just teach. This is a word that means to instruct a little child. When I was a child, I spake as a child. In Galatians 3, the idea of we're no longer under a schoolmaster, same word here. It's the idea of teaching a child, educating them. And when again, when you're the teacher and you're educating, the main goal there is for the kid to learn, not for you to show up. So in meekness, instructing those, and you notice who you're instructing. Those who oppose themselves, or they are in opposition, and it means to be in opposition mentally because they are in the snare, in the trap of the devil. It's important for me to remember that the person that sits across from me has been taken as a prisoner by Satan, even if they don't understand this, against their will. Because if every one of us had a choice, we'd start out in life, and this is what we would say, if we understood everything. If God somehow, at two years old or three years old, took us up to heaven and impressed upon every engram in our minds that you want to be here, and you go back to earth and live as though you want to be here, we would come back here and we would be perfect people. Because we want to be there. But that's not what happens, is it? And Satan comes along with all the candy of the world and says, eat this, and we do. When I'm instructing someone, that's what I need to remember. I'm dealing with someone who's been captured and who's in the trap and is as pitiful as any animal ever was in a steel trap, maybe more so. Now let's finally close with this. We want them to repent. We want them to acknowledge the truth. We want them to be right with God. But that requires the proper mindset. We began with this passage. Let's read it again. Do nothing, Marvin read for us, do nothing according to self-interest. That is, self-serving ambition. The word is even often translated. Ambition. Don't do anything for ambition. Or according to conceit. That is vainglory, empty pride. You know the kind of thing that kind of in a situation lifts you up here, puts them down there? We all understand that. Don't do anything out of that motivation. But in lowliness of mind, we call it humility usually, but it means in your mind for you to go down and lift that other person up. That's the idea. It's like you bending down and taking a child who's so short and looks around at all of us giants, and you pick them up and you lift them higher than everybody around here, you watch the look on their face. That's what you want to do with people. In lowliness of mind, everyone is esteeming others superior to themselves. 
you are more important than me. In this situation, as we sit here and I teach you, it's you that's more important, not me. Not just considering their own things, or as Marvin's translation said, and rightly so, their own interest. Not just considering your own interest, but also the interest of others. You need to consider that. It's not, we're not getting into this discussion, trying to build each other up in the faith. The goal here is not for you to be like me. And think like I think. And do what I do. And do what I tell you to do. That is not the goal. And so, look to the interest of others. Let this mind. And it means this disposition, this way of thinking. Let this be in you. That that was in Christ Jesus. I say it often because I think it it should be repeated every time we come together. What if any time during that night, when he couldn't get the disciples to stay awake, when they all ran scared, when he was slapped, his beard was torn out of his face in an illegal trial, when he went before Pilate and people who were adoring him five days earlier are screaming, crucify, when the soldiers were spitting on him, when they were mocking him, when they were hitting him with a stick, when they slammed thorns down into his head, when they nailed him to a cross, if at any time he had thought about himself, where would we be? And now what he says is, you think like me. You're going to be abused. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to have people not give you the respect you deserve. And so what? The goal here is for you to help them come to me. If I can remember that, I can edify them. You're here this morning and you're not a child of God. As we read from Matthew 28, we would encourage you to believe and accept that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God. To confess that and to repent of, to want to change everything in your life that is not right or that you learn is not right. To be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. To be a disciple of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've done that and your life is not what it needs to be, then turn things around today. If you want to ask for us to pray together with you, we'd love to do that. Please come while we stand and sing.